I love a lot of things about being a hospital chaplain. It's always fun when babies are born and you get to you know, pray with a new family. It's amazing when someone comes out of a complicated surgery and it's all going to be okay. It's amazing when people find out they're cancer-free or when their kidneys start functioning again. So many awesome opportunities come about to celebrate and praise God when you're a hospital chaplain. But there are also times where it's hard, it's rough. There is a lot of death in hospitals. There are a lot of broken hearts. There are a lot of people who want God to do amazingly miraculous things that don't come to happen, don't come to to pass. And we end up with a lot of these struggles of wondering why God lets things happen. And we ask this familiar question about the philosophical dilemma, and we want to know, if God is all loving and all good, why is there evil in the world? Why do bad things happen? We sit back and, you know, the philosophical dilemma kind of goes like this, that if God is all loving and there's evil in the world, then he must not be all powerful. Because if he was all loving and all powerful, then he would stop it. Then we say, well, okay, well, there is evil in the world, and if God is all-powerful, then that means he must not be good or all-loving. And so we end up with this philosophical dilemma of wondering why an all-powerful and all-loving God does not put an end to the evil and the bad things that happen in this world. And... I can give you the theological answer. I'm actually going to do that in a minute, but I want to preface this with the reality that if you're working with someone or talking to someone who has gone through an extreme problem in their life, terrible things have happened to them, they're going through grief and loss and pain, giving them a theological answer is not going to make them feel better. In fact, it can actually make things worse because it may make them feel like, well, why am I feeling this way if this is the answer? But I do want to give you an answer because there is one. I've heard so many pastors and ministers and speakers over the years say that, you know, when bad things happen, well, God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And you just need to have more faith. You have to have more trust in God. We don't know why bad things happen. Or, or my favorite one is, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Oh, I get so frustrated when I hear people say that because there's a better answer. There's actually a real answer. And the theological answer to this question has two parts to it. The first is that we have the, the problem with sin and free will. You see, Adam and Eve, when they were put in the garden in a perfect world, in a perfect environment, they had to be given choice because true love and true worship only happens when there's a choice. If God would not have given Adam and Eve a choice, if he would have forced them to worship him and love him, then that would have been slavery. That would have been robots. God didn't want robots or he would have made robots. He wanted real relationship and real relationship always means there's a choice. There's always a choice when it's somebody you love. You always have the choice to either choose to show them kindness and love and trust 
and be willing to work with them. And, and, and you know, it's why we say in our marriage vows and better for worse, right? Sickness and in health, richer for poor, because we know that there's a choice. That when times get hard, people do have the choice to leave. But that's not love. Love is the choice to choose that person even in hard times. But then we have in free will, Adam and Eve choosing not to trust God. And that's the root of all sin. Sin is a fancy church word for me saying or you saying that our way is better than God's way. And that's really what it comes down to is, God, I don't trust you. If I trusted you, then I would do what you asked me to. But I feel like my way is better than your way and I don't trust you. And so we end up finding in this first part of the answer is that sin and free will brought evil and death. That's just, that's ultimately what happened, that in this perfect world that was empty of sin, that when man disobeyed God, then evil came into the world. And we find out in the scriptures that not only did this change people and how we live, it actually changed the earth itself. That Adam is told that the ground will not be as fertile and as fruitful, and Adam will have to work it the before he didn't, he didn't have to. Life kind of just came easily to them in this perfect world. This means that when the earth changed, there were things like, you know, we know that it didn't rain yet until Noah. So after sin and all this, it brought about changes and floods and hurricanes and earthquakes and all these problems, right, that came onto the planet because of sin and death. And so why do bad things happen? Because we live in an evil world. We live in a broken world, a world that's been fractured by our disobedience to God. And then there's a second part to this. My friend and, and, and Pastor T.J. Green said this many years ago, that we want God to remove the evil in this world. But what if he starts with us? Because the reality is every person on the planet is evil. When we think about evil and bad things in this world, we like to think about the Hitlers and the Mussolinis, right? And the and the terrible things that, that we've looked at in history. It's easy to say, oh, that's a, a Jeffrey Dahmer, right? Or a Zodiac killer, like all these evil mass murderers, you know, Jim Joneses. We don't like to look in the mirror and see the evil in ourselves. The terrible thoughts, the, the depravity and the absolute sin that pervades our lives from the moment we exist. I mean, if you've had any experiences with babies, you know that babies are selfish from the moment they come into the world. It's me, me, me. They don't cry because they're upset about social injustice. They cry because they want something. Give it to me right now, and I'm going to cry until you make me happy, right? We are sinful from the moment we are born. And so the theological answer has two parts, that bad things and evil exist in the world because people are evil. And the second part of that is that if we want God to remove all the evil from the world, what if he starts with us? What if he begins with you and me? Well, of course, that changes our perspective a little bit, doesn't it? So that's the theological answer. Did it make you feel better? Did it, did it take away all the, the hardships and pains and, and, and the conundrums that you have? Probably not. <laughs> you know, This wasn't a, like, ah, moment. Now, it is good to have the answer. It is good to be able to provide these answers to people when they, you know, when you meet people that say, well, I can't believe in God because of the evil in the world. You can give them an answer. You can give them an, a good apologetic for that. But when I look at this, it does not give people hope. 
what I want to talk about today is how do we, as followers of Jesus, give hope to people in their brokenness, in their struggles. I remember uh, one patient that I worked with years ago. He uh, was a former drug addict, and it had messed with his kidney. And he had, for years, had, had come back and, and, and been sober. And he had been, you know, living a healthy life. He had gotten married, had beautiful children, and had a wonderful family. But in the course of his life, he relapsed. And he ended up going back to the drugs that, that ruined his body. And it made it even worse. Where before, he knew he was on borrowed time, but he was still able to live the, after the relapse his body shut down. And I remember sitting in the room in the ICU with his family as they said their goodbyes. And these little girls came up and while their, you know, daddy was dying, try and tell their goodbyes and say their I love yous. And I just remember in that moment, I usually can keep my composure because I've been around a lot of death over the years. But this time it was just, it was just too much. And I remember we all just kind of gathered around the bedside and wrapped our arms around each other. And we just, as a group, we just wept. I don't even remember how long it lasted, but we just wept together. No theological answer was going to bring comfort. But the reality that God was there was a truth that did not make us feel better, but it did give us comfort. You see, we love to think of, of peace as happiness. But peace is not happiness. Those are two separate things. They usually go together. But peace is simply the absence of conflict. And God promises us peace through the power of his Holy Spirit. You see, what I want to tell you about today is not just a theological or philosophical answer to the problem of evil. I want to remind you that you and I serve the God who weeps. That there is a God that we worship that, that's not made of wood or stone. That's not an idol that sits on a shelf or lives in a temple. That's compassionless and distant and doesn't care. You and I serve the God who is intimately concerned with our day-to-day -day lives. Who loves us and is connected to us. And who weeps because of our pain. In John chapter 11, we find this familiar passage. And if you've got your scriptures, I invite you to turn there with me. But this is the familiar passage that I'm sure you've studied. If you've been to a funeral, you've probably heard this taught at many funerals. I've taught it at many funerals of the death of Lazarus. And I usually don't like to use this example because Lazarus comes back from the dead. And people can, can lose some of that comfort in this passage because they're in the back of their mind they're thinking, well, the person I love is still in the coffin. They're still buried in the ground. They're still in the tomb. They didn't come back from the dead like Lazarus. But what Jesus does in this passage shows us the heart of God in the middle of our pain. So to give you the context, we always want to read the Bible in context, that Jesus is traveling around ministering in different towns throughout Israel. And he gets word that one of his best friends, a guy named Lazarus, is sick. And his two sisters, who are also Jesus' good friends, invite him to come and heal him. They said, please come and help him. And Jesus doesn't go immediately. 
and there's a lot of complications in the background with this, but the big thing that we find out is that Jesus is knowingly sitting back when he knows Lazarus is going to die. He tells this to his disciples. But then he tells them that I'm glad that you get to see what's going to happen. And that's just kind of my paraphrase of it. And starting in verse 17, they head back from where they were. They head to where Lazarus and his family are. And starting in verse 17, we pick up in the passage where it says, when Jesus arrived at Bethany. Now, just for a clarification here for your geography, there's more than one town named Bethany. It's kind of like the town I live in is the town of Madison. There are more than one Madison in the country. You know, there's a Madison, Florida, there's a Madison, Georgia, there's a Madison, Wisconsin, there's Madisons everywhere. And so there's more than one Bethany in Israel. There's Bethany by the Jordan, where John the Baptist was baptized on the eastern side of the Jordan, what's modern day Jordan, the country. But then in the north, the northwest part of Israel, north of the Sea of Galilee, there's another Bethany, and that's where Lazarus, Mary, and Martha lived. And so it says, when Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Now, context is key, not just with the geography, but also with the culture. You see, the Jewish people believed that after two to three days, depending on how you measured your days, right, that the spirit left the body and went to Abraham's bosom or Sheol. And so for it to be four days meant that surely there was no coming back, that the spirit had departed and the tomb would have been sealed. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Mary and Martha in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Now, can you imagine? They both received word, right? But Martha goes out to meet him, and Mary stays behind. And in this exchange, we see two different conversations. And at first, you would wonder, why does one stay behind? But we see the answer here in just a little bit. When Martha comes to Jesus, look at what happens in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, that passage, if only you had been here, is one of those highlight portions of the Bible because it shows us some commonality that even though this is a 2,000-year-old document, some things never change. When we go through hardships, we have the same question, the same statement. Lord, if you'd showed up, if only you had come through. God, if only you had been here, then this tragedy would never have happened. This person would not have died. This trauma would not have happened. I wouldn't be going through this problem. Lord, if only you had been here. But look at what she says. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus tells her this, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Now, we look at that word belief, and we know it from famous passages like John 3.16, right? God loved the world so much, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't die, but will have eternal life. And we think of belief as head knowledge, right? I believe that the Statue of Liberty is in New York City. I've seen pictures. I've talked to people who have been there. And I've seen it in television shows. I've seen it in movies. I mean, I, I, I 
believe in my head that the Statue of Liberty is in New York City. But belief in my head is not the same as this word that we translate belief in the Greek. The word in the Greek, whenever you see belief or faith, is the word or a version of the word pisteo. And it means total trust. And so when we read passages like John 3.16, that word belief, God loved the world so much, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't die. They'll have eternal. That's total trust. This would be like me going to the Statue of Liberty and climbing up to the top, climbing all the stairs up to the top and putting all of my weight on it and trusting it not to fall. When I put all my weight on the top of that statue, I've put total trust in it. You see, that's what Jesus is telling her. He says, I am the resurrection and life. Anyone who puts total trust in me will live even after dying. You see, this is the comfort that God wants to give to us. Yes, Lazarus would come back from the dead. That's not what I'm focused on here. I'm focusing on the heart of Jesus, which is the heart of our God. That he wants us to know that even in our pain and even in our comfort, there is a bigger plan. There's a greater things at work. And look at what he goes on to say in verse 26. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Once again, the word trust. Everyone who lives in me and puts total trust in me will never die. Now, a lot of people look at this passage and they say, well, golly, everybody dies. Hospital morgues are full of dead people. Cemeteries are full of dead people. People die every day. Jesus is showing her spiritual truth. You see, sin doesn't just cause physical death. That was part of the consequences of Adam and Eve sinning. But the real death, that's the real tragedy, is when we talk about death and spiritual life, spiritual death is separation from God. You see, Adam and Eve were told if they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. But then they went on to live for centuries. What Jesus was taught, what God was talking about when he told them that, was that they would spiritually die. They would become separated from God. They went from walking with him daily, face to face, person to person, to being separated and having to only talk to God through things like prayer and worship through the sacrificial system, right? But Jesus says that when we put total trust in him and we live in him, we will never die. We will have eternal life. And then he asked this question, do you believe this, Martha? Do you put total trust in this? And she says, yes, Lord, I've always believed. I've always put total trust in that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come from God, into the world from God. This is the heartbeat. It's not, Jesus, are you going to save me from my pain? Not, Jesus, why did this happen? Even though she admits that, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. But she recognizes that there's something bigger at play and that God's heart for her did not change based off her circumstances. You see, this is what we tend to believe about God. We tend to think that if life is going well, then God is happy with me and is blessing me. But if life is going poorly then I must have messed up and God must hate me. Like God's some bully with an ant farm and a magnifying glass, and when we do something that makes him mad, he just burns us with his magnifying glass, right? 
That's not what that's not what the truth of the scriptures teaches. It's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was telling her that in the middle of her pain, that he was giving her hope. And that if she put total trust in him, that she would live even after she died. And it goes on to say, Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, The teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet. And look at the, re- the repeat here. It says, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, she asked the same question. I wonder if this was rehearsed. We don't know. But I wonder if the reason why they didn't go together is they both wanted the opportunity to remind Jesus that he, in their minds, failed. That now these two women, and once again, put this in cultural context, it doesn't outright say it, but we can make the inference based off the context that Mary and Martha lived with Lazarus, that Lazarus was their provider. This would happen a lot of times in small families, that when a woman would either not get married or if her husband died, then somebody in the family would be named the kinsman redeemer. We see this in the book of Ruth, right? That that Ruth ends up, you know, going and uh, being redeemed by Boaz, right? And so this is more than likely what has happened, that both Mary and Martha have either not been married, they're too young, or that they were married and their husbands have died. Because they lived in the house with Lazarus. Every time Jesus came, they were there in the house with him. And we also don't see Lazarus having a family. Because only Mary and Martha are the ones serving Jesus. Now, am I reading into this? Possibly. But it is worth noting that there's a strong possibility here. Strong probability. That with Lazarus dead, Mary and Martha were going to be destitute. You see, in their day and age, when a woman didn't have a man in the family to provide for them, culturally it was unacceptable for them to work and have a trade in the Jewish culture of the time. And so you would have two choices. You could become a beggar, like Ruth did. Ruth went, in the book of Ruth, she went and begged behind the farmers and collected their leftovers, but they dropped for her. Or they could become a prostitute. This is the situation that not only did they lose their brother, they also lost their provider. And Jesus saw them weeping and the other people wailing and a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. He loved to talk about that verse as being the shortest, if it's not the shortest, it's one of the shortest passages in all of Scripture. But the reality is, Jesus had a broken heart for their situation. Even though he knew what was going to happen in the future, he wept because of their pain. And look at what it says, the people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man, couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? And I love that in this passage, we see the same thing echoed 2,000 years later 
that we find ourselves in one of these three positions. If we're the person that's been hurt like Mary and Martha, we tend to ask the question, Lord, where are you? And we get mad at God and say, if you only you showed up, if only you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. Or if we're like the people that see Jesus weeping and say, look, he loves. He's got such a heart for people. See how much he loved them. And we see God's love. But then we can also fall into the trap of being the critic and saying, God, you've done miracles for other people. Why can't you do a miracle for me or for this person I love? And here's what I want you to see about the heartbeat of Jesus. Is that God showed his hurt to show us his heart. God showed his hurt to show us his heart. You see, you and I worship the God who weeps. The God who knows our pain, who bore our sorrows, who took our sins to the cross. If anybody knows Jesus knows. This is why in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how Jesus can be the great high priest because he knows our pains and our sorrows. As we get ready to wrap up this time, I want to I want to look at one more passage. In the book of Colossians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae in chapter 2, Paul writes this to them. He says in verse 15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created, and He is supreme over all creation. For through Him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through Him and for Him. And I love this part in verse 17. He, Jesus, existed before anything else, and He holds all creation together. I'm not sure where you are today. Maybe hearing this is twisting the dagger in your heart. And you're saying the same question that Mary and Martha asked. Lord, if only you've been here. Lord, where are you? Or maybe you're like the critics who say, God, you you healed other people. You gave other people miracles. Where's my miracle? Where are you in the middle of my pain? And I want to remind you, God showed us his hurt. God, Jesus wept. And 2,000 years since, we can look back at that passage and be reminded that God showed us his hurt to show us his heart. And we can hold on to the promise that Jesus holds all creation together. And if he holds all creation together, he holds you and I together too. He can be there to be our source of comfort. He can be there to carry us through our trials and tribulations. As we begin to wrap up our time together, I want to give you some feet to faith questions. I want to have you chew on this, and I want to ask you some questions. First, have you come to peace with the problem of evil? Now, not that you're happy about it, not that you like it, but peace is the absence of conflict. Have you come to peace with the problem of evil and recognized that if God were to take evil out of the world, he'd have to take us out of the world? Have you come to peace with the problem of evil? Second, I want to ask you, who are you putting total trust in? Mary and Martha put total trust in Jesus that even though they were facing poverty and destitution, they still believed in Jesus. They still put total trust in him, that he would keep his promises and that he would continue to be their resurrection in life even after physical death. So who are you putting total trust in? Are you putting total trust in yourself? Are you angry at God? Are you 
mad at him for the things of your life, or if you said, you know what, God, I may not always like it, but I still trust you. I still know that ultimately you're working things out for my good. Who are you putting total trust in today? And number three, how can you connect with the God who weeps? You see, even in all of Jesus' perfection, he still wept for the people he loved. And guess what? He loves you and me. We worship the God who weeps, who is acquainted with our sorrows, who knows our pains and our problems and still walks with us and brings comfort and peace in our lives. You see, God showed us his hurt to show us his heart. And the God of the universe loves you. And even when you don't see him, even when you don't know what's going on, even when it's hard to trust him, he's still here. He's still present. And this passage reminds us that God showed us his hurt to show us his heart. And you and I can take peace and take comfort in the knowledge that he is everything he said he is, that he is the resurrection and the life. And the people who believe and live in him will die, but they'll still live. They'll still have eternity. And God is still in the process of putting everything right and reconciling the world to himself. Is there evil in the world? Yes. Do bad things happen? Yes. Do theological and philosophical answers give us comfort? No. But you and I can take comfort in the fact that God showed us his hurt to show us his heart. And we worship the God who weeps, who loves us and knows us. Be blessed this week.